Hello, it's the Historically Thinking Commonplace book for the week of March 24th, 2019. And if there is ever a demonstration that the arc of history usually looks just like one damn thing after another, or a bowl of unrelated events stew, it's this week. On the one hand, March 24th, 1241, Krakow in Poland fell to the golden horde of the Mongol Empire. On March 24th, 1989, one of the largest oil spills in the history of the United States, when the oil tanker Exxon Valdez ran aground in Prince William Sound in Alaska, resulting in 11 million gallons of oil spilling out over a stretch of some 45 miles. March 25th, 1911, New York City, a raging fire inside the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory kills 123 young women employed as seamstresses along with 23 men on the 8th and 9th floors of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company in Lower Manhattan. About 50 of the victims jumped to their deaths rather than perish from the flames. It was a spurred national interest concerning the rights of immigrant women workers in the New York garment industry who labored for about six or seven days a week and long hours for about $5 of weekly pay. March 27, 1977, was still the worst accident in the history of civil aviation when two Boeing 747 jets collided on the ground in the Canary Islands, killing 570 people. March 28, 1979, Three Mile Island nuclear power plant near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, had an accident in which the uranium in the reactor core overheated due to the failure of a single cooling valve. On the credit side, as it were, March 24, 1934, the Philippines were granted independence by Franklin Delano Roosevelt after decades of American control. March 25, 1807, much more momentously, the British Parliament abolished the slave trade. Following a long campaign against it by Quakers, the William Wilberforce and his associates, and other social reformers, including Oladia Akiano, a freed enslaved man. March 26, 1979, the Camp David Accord ended 30 years of warfare between Israel and Egypt when Prime Minister Menachem Begin of Israel and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat signed a Treaty of Mutual Recognition and Peace. March 30, 1981, newly elected President Ronald Reagan was shot in the chest while walking to his limousine in Washington, D.C. by would-be assassin John Hinckley Jr. He was rushed to surgery to remove a 22 caliber bullet from his left lung. He soon recovered and returned to his work. Historian's birthdays. Paul Anthony Cartledge, the A.G. Leventis Professor Emeritus of Ancient History at Cambridge University, born 24th March 1947. François Fouré, March 27, 1927, a historian of the French Revolution. Once a communist, Fouré renounced his communism and then pioneered a rejection of the Marxist interpretation of the French Revolution. He eventually also rejected the Annal School, in which he had been intellectually raised, and its emphasis on long-term and deep structural factors, emphasizing instead ideas and intellectual history. And Alan John Percival Taylor, 
born March 25, 1906, died September 7, 1990, a British historian of modern Europe. Yale Paul, historian Paul Kennedy has described Taylor thus, Anyone living in England during the 1950s and 1960s who was politically alert knew about A.J.P. Taylor. He was that diminutive, bow-tied Oxford academic who, with Kenan Collins and Michael Foote, marched in protest organized by the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. He is one of the first British teledons who could stand in front of the camera and pontificate without notes about virtually anything. One of my favorite Taylor legends has him arriving at the studio in 1953 to give a talk about Napoleon, only to be told of Stalin's death and asked to lecture instead on the life of a very different dictator, which he did in his unflappable way. He was the only person who could get Oxford undergraduates out of bed early in the morning and in vast numbers to sit in the chilly examination schools and listen to him talk for exactly 55 minutes and again without notes on modern European history. Alan Taylor wrote one of the most enduring works of diplomatic history, The Struggle for Mastery in Europe, 1848-1918, yet he also wrote potboilers that swiftly faded from sight and use. His regular opinion pieces for The Guardian, The Daily Herald, and Lord Beaverbrook's newspaper, The Sunday Express, infuriated his academic colleagues and the British establishment. He was a burr under the saddle, a pain in the neck, a troublemaker. Speaking of events, here's Francois Frouet on events and narrative from his book, In the Workshop of History. The events in a narrative consist precisely of moments. Their ephemeral nature is what characterizes them above all else. Events are the unique points in time in which something happens that cannot be assimilated to what has come before it or what will come after it. That something, the historical fact promoted to the rank of event, can never be compared, strictly speaking, to a preceding or subsequent fact, since it is in its empirically unique nature that determines its importance. For example, the Battle of Waterloo and Stalin's death occurred only once. They cannot be likened to any other battle or any other death, and they have transformed world history. And yet, an event, if considered in isolation, is unintelligible. It is like a pebble picked up on a beach, meaningless. For it to acquire significance, it must be integrated into a pattern of other events in relation to which it will become meaningful. That is the function of narrative. Waterloo can acquire significance in the context of a history of Napoleon's life, the First Empire, or 19th century Franco-British rivalry. Stalin's death becomes important in the context of the history of 20th century Russia, international communism, or any other imaginable chronological constellation of events. Thus, in narrative history, an event, even though it is by definition unique and not comparable, derives its significance from its position on the axis of the narrative, that is, on the axis of time. Since an event is not an object intellectually created to be studied, it cannot acquire significance by means of an analysis of its relationship to other comparable or identical objects within a system. As it belongs to the realm of experience, of what has happened, 
It cannot be organized or even simply named except in relation to the external and general significance of the historical period of which it is one of the features. All narrative history is a succession of origin events, or if one prefers, a history of events. And all history of events is teleological history. Only the ending of the history makes it possible to choose and understand the events that compose it. That ending can differ considerably from one historian to another and according to their chosen topics. For a long time, endings were enveloped in religious apologetics or moral edification, which is no longer fashionable. The same cannot be said for the glorification of national power or national consciousness, which is still one of narrative history's most important functions after having been, no doubt, its initial mainspring. All peoples need an account of their origins and a memorial to their times of greatness that can serve at the same time as guarantees of the future. Just as the ability to write brings power, so are our archives the memories or symbols of power. That's Francois Fouret in the Workshop of History, and that's Historically Thinking's Commonplace book for the week of March 24th, 2019. Thanks for listening, right in the corner where you are.